Bernstein looked across the newsroom. There was a pillar between his desk and Woodward's, about 25 feet away. He stepped back several paces. It appeared that Woodward was also working on the story. That figured, Bernstein thought. Bob Woodward was a prima donna who played heavily at office politics. Yale, a veteran of the Navy officer corps. Lawns, greenswood, state rooms and grass tennis courts, Bernstein guessed. But probably not enough pavement for him to be good at investigative reporting. Bernstein knew that Woodward couldn't write very well. One office rumour had it that English was not Woodward's native language. Bernstein was a college dropout. He'd started as a copy boy at the Washington Star when he was 16, became a full-time reporter at 19, and had worked at the Post since 1966. He occasionally did investigative series, had covered the courts and City Hall, and liked to do long, discursive pieces about the capital's people and neighbourhoods. Woodward knew that Bernstein occasionally wrote about rock music for the Post, that figured. When he learned that Bernstein sometimes reviewed classical music, he choked that down with difficulty. Bernstein looked like one of those countercultural journalists that Woodward despised. Bernstein thought that Woodward's rapid rise at the Post had less to do with his ability than his establishment credentials. They had never worked in a story together. Woodward was 29, Bernstein 28. Welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is someone far more professional than me in every capacity, a journalist uh, who's worked at the biggest organisations in Australia, at News Corp, at SBS, at like one of the last like and most read street newspapers, MX in Australia, like omnipresent as it were, every single where, and is currently the editor at Nova Entertainment's GOAT website, which is an online entertainment website about pop culture, and also has some podcasts and stuff like that, which we'll make sure we link into the show notes. But she's also a really good friend and uh, a, a friend of myself and Maria Lewis, a, another podcast collaborator on One Heat Minute Productions, Mel Matheson. Welcome to All the President's Minutes. Thank you. And, and she's just been here with me. Uh, who thinks is of some semi-professional podcast who fucking hits, forgets to hit record. Um, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Number really one. excited. It's such a great idea. Yeah. Well, look, uh, it's prescience at the time maybe was like scratching in the back of my mind when I thought that this movie absolutely, and I'm hoping that every single episode shows that it stands up to the minute by minute scrutiny. It was scratching there, but it wasn't, it wasn't the only reason that I did it, but now that I'm doing it, everyone's like, no, this needs to happen now. Like if there's any time for this to happen, it has to happen right this very moment because anything that is Watergate, anything that is political underhandedness and corruption is, is a topic that is so omnipresent in all media right now. And, and I think what is going to be interesting, obviously we're going to have lots of American guests, obviously we're going to have lots of journalists, but it's really interesting also, I think, and I'm excited to talk to you about being a journalist and a long-term journalist as you are and an editor, but I'm also excited that for an international audience, talking to Australian journalists might drum up some really interesting things that are happening in the landscape of Australian journalism mm-hmm. that might be sort of sliding under the international radar. You know, right now, Australia is on fire. We're recording literally, literally on fire. We're recording that on the 4th of January 2020, this episode. And so it's on fire, but there's so much other stuff that now this natural disaster and this climate-induced natural disaster. Um, and the Prime Minister is in the middle of a big old PR da- disaster yeah. <laughs> that he dug himself into. Yes. It's not only – it's it's the worst possible series of circumstances, but 
getting back to the show and we're going to get onto many more tangents. I'm excited about that. So we just kicked off and started very quickly around your experience with the movie. Do you remember the first time you watched this? Was this prescribed viewing for you early days, Jono, or was this something like you caught it on TV? How did how did you it first even come across it all the presidents? Wasn't in um, I watched it when I was at uni. Yes, um, but not for my journalism class. It was actually for filmmaking. Awesome. Um, I think it might have been in the same sort of like the realm of from memory. It might have been one of my like reality fi- like reality sort of like docu series yes. classes. Um, so that idea of like how do you take a real life story and make it entertaining for the screen? Yes, because um, that's always hard. Um, yeah. Anyone who's watched The Crown, like that's <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. A lot of research. A lot of research and a lot of shit to cut out. Yeah. And it's people's lives. You have to make it entertaining, but also real. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's difficult. And The Crown is having this amazing thing that's happening in the world where, and, you know, Watergate and all the presidents, man, people did it old school. They went to libraries. They bought the Woodward and Bernstein books. They bought all the presidents, man. They bought the final days. They might've bought... Uh, Fred Emery's Watergate book, which I'm reading. There's a snack of them that might have gone down Hunter S. Thompson and looked at the Nixon campaign trails in Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail and all those sorts of things. Um, but The Crown's having this interesting thing where it's like blowing Google search queries every mm-hmm. week, every episode because every historical thing that's portrayed in The Crown, like people then Google it for a whole week afterwards until they find all the information about it. So, yeah, it's like it's a, it's an, it's a mammoth amount of work. And then to synthesize it to like focus and say, what do we actually want to tell? Like what's dramatically important to this? It's, I, th- I think it's also like giving people a snapshot. Like The Crown's a bit different in that it's what they're what, one hour episodes. Mm-hmm. And so creating an arc within that episode that, that sort of comes full circle, like there's a resolution at the end of every episode, that's bloody hard to do. Yes. So like I remember with the Kennedy episode from season two, Yes. And when I, I did a bit of research afterwards, because I dug, you went did. down that rabbit hole, um, I remember them saying there was a much bigger gap between their visit and his death. But in the episode, they make it seem like it was quite recent. Yes. Because they need to you complete need to have the closure. story yeah. arc. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like just going in eyes wide open, really. And this, so based off of the book of the same name, All the President's Men, and we're coming into it super, super duper early um, at the beginning. But there are a lot of great convos to be had, I think, once we dive into this minute and we talk further about what they had to leave out. Because mm-hmm. if you go down the all the president's men rabbit hole, as I have, um, and you may be listening along and wanting to do the same, there are like five or six books in this series of books written by Woodward and Bernstein. There's the compendiums of articles. There's, you know, third parties who are writing about it objectively later from, you know, external sources. They're not necessarily American journalists. There might even be UK journos that are coming in over the top and trying to sort of synthesize a whole bunch of the chorus of stuff because obviously the Woodward and Bernstein is very much the post perspective. doesn't encompass the times all the time and things like that. Um, but it's so easy to go down a rabbit hole. And this movie is really the beginning of their journey in this and right up to sort of a tipping point. And what you would, I guess, think of as quote unquote, traditionally the best dramatic ending would be to see Nixon out. Mm. This movie denies us of that. And the minute that you're coming into, we've seen Nixon, the man at the beginning 
who is omnipresent and something. We've seen him smiling, happy, addressing Congress already. We've seen him be introduced, and then we never see him again. <laughs> we see him on television screens. We do not see anyone portraying him. We don't see him reacting to any of these uh, accusations. We see the, the, the archival footage and people speaking to it, but we never actually get him. It's, it's I think because it's such a, it's a real tribute to the legwork of investigative journalism. Yes. Like it doesn't romanticize it at all. It is hard work. Yes. Like it's, I barely touched upon it in, <laughs> in, in my career, but it's, I've seen, I've worked with, you know, done a little bit here and there where I've helped out or whatever, but for people to spend months, if not years, chasing a story, it's a lot. Yes. It's a lot. It's and not, it doesn't do well for one's social life. No. And they're really <laughs> like, this is, this movie's a real tribute to that. It's not trying to sugarcoat it. And back then you didn't have, you couldn't just like look everyone up or Facebook stalk <laughs> them or anything like that. You hit the scene where he goes through the um, the phone books yeah. to try and f- like, and then goes for every state because you can't just you can't Google. count one out. No, it's just it's so it must be bizarre for younger journo's now going. What do you mean a phone book? What's his phone book thing? <laughs> well, just for any viewer, right? I want to touch on one thing. When you were doing your filmmaking class, you're watching all the president's men. At that time, you know you're going to be a journalist. Do do. I talk a lot of to a lot of folks about the process porn of this movie and pro, the process yeah. porn movies, um, as in you see that someone sort of grinding through the process and just being good at their job and being obsessed with their obsessive particular way that they go about their their job. Was that kind of was that did that resonate with you? Did that like tweak with you something like that a bit of obsessiveness? It's funny that the bits that stick out to me that are so truthful is the notebooks. Yes. Like the type of notebooks everyone and, and the note taking and all. Like I had to learn shorthand for my cadetship. Yes. So it's weird seeing that. That's not, that doesn't exist anymore. I used it the other day for an interview. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. So I, was, no, I, I mean, still as in, it. it's not, it's not no, prescribed. No, because they record everything now, but it takes so much longer. And there are certain circumstances where you cannot record. So back, you know, years ago when I was covering council rounds, a lot of councils would not let you record in the chambers. So you had to take notes. You had to be damn fast because <laughs> they'd rattle off. But I think, yeah, in this movie, the the notes just are so – the only thing that romanticises it for me is the, the typewriters. I've always loved typewriters because yes. I got one when I was like 10 or 11. <laughs> I was very excited. Got it for my birthday. Um, and I still have it. Um, the other two. I'm desperate to get a typewriter oh, after watching this movie. Really old it's, school one. I love it. Um, but I have two kids. There's someone's going to drop that typewriter on themselves, and it's going to ruin. Or jam their finger <laughs> jam in their it. Finger yeah, it won't end well. Um, the other ones are Spotlight. The yes. way that um, movie ag- again showed the legwork, mm. um, but also that camaraderie and the sort of the unglamorized reality of everyday journalism. And then the other one is the fifth season of The Wire. Yes, great. The newsroom set up in that is so much of the newsrooms I've worked in. And it's for The Wire, that's a, that's a, the, the amazing thing. And, and a lot of people talk about it as like one of the weakest seasons of the show. Come, like it's one of the great, it's one of the greatest shows ever made. So when they're talking about weak seasons, they're talking about it as a, re, in a relative sense. But the thing I love about The Wire, and it happens a little bit in some parts in the state of play, um, the American updated state of play film, it it's 
that there are you feel like there are remnants of journalists who worked in newsrooms like we're seeing in all the president's men that are colliding with modern sensibilities as in modern journalistic techniques and just old school. So you're yep. either really old school or really new school and it's blogging and it's this and it's that and it's colliding with like, no facts and, you yep. know, and sources and making sure those sources are double and triple checked and, and making sure that, you know, there's qui bono as in who benefits from this source that is giving you this information and the layers and layers of that in all the presidents is like literally, are we allowed to publish anymore? Cause the stakes are so high, but the wire sort of digs into the reeds of that on a city based way you know that the wire is just an, a stunning thing in i really song. liked season five i love the whole series i loved it something's up uh please gather around steve could someone get word across the hall to features and sports sure. we want everyone on this we get sold again? First the LA Times buys us up, then the Tribune, Law of the Fish. Wait a minute. Maybe we won a Pulitzer. Pulitzer are still a week away. It just turned April. Mm. Look at Whiting's pants. If we won a Pulitzer, the executive editor would be Tumescent. Tumescent? Speak English. I'm just a police reporter. Tumescent and gorged. Exactly. It's a bad time for newspapers. As you all know. A top five ending of any TV show because it actually shows the cyclical nature of shit. Like it doesn't just end. It's like, no, it's everything is ending and beginning and ending and beginning again. Great show. Great season of that show. All right. Let's get to this minute because I've said it many mil a million times if anyone's listening to podcasts with me is that when I go through shows minute by minute or movies that I love and adore – over and over and over again, I'm shocked that I continue to discover stuff. So Mel and I are going to watch the fourth minute of Alan Pakula's All the President's Men, and then we're going to come back and talk about it with you. There we are. This says a lot. It's it's very slow. It's a, it's a very slow starting movie. I, I want I want to say two things to you to argue the slow. Necessarily slow. Necessarily slow. Yeah. yeah. It, very sort of easing you into something. The first thing is one thing that resonates later. It's a line that Martin Balsam, oh sorry, Hal Holbrook, who plays Deep Throat, who looks a shitload like Mark felt the guy who he actually ended up being. Um, he says, these are not very bright guys. And in this minute, when I see like an office building 
at the at the beginning, the Watergate office building, and you see people flashing torches around. It it's in that weird spot in Washington at this time, and Sydney has it now too, where there's office buildings, and then there's sort of high end, right in the center of town, um, apartment buildings mm-hmm. and residential. And so, right at this minute, the very outset, it's like, and we see from there what happens in the preceding minute, we see their other unit sort of monitoring the building for them um, later on. But I, I just think they're not very bright. Like these are not very bright guys. These are, these are guys in suits who are doing this and f- we will eventually get to meet them and see the actors that portray them, etc. But I, as I'm watching this, I'm like, this is not a smart idea. It's like ta- taping the, the, the handle or the, the latch, the door latch. Taping the latch especially as obviously as the latch is taped is, is exactly where we end the minute. But firstly, I'm just struck by that because people, I don't know like whether it's right now, what's been great as ever. If you see a torch flicking around a building, especially a big office building that is still lit up, it says one thing. It has a massive exclamation point. Something, someone in here is in there doing something they shouldn't be doing. It always reminds me of Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you might want to send a maintenance man over to that office across the way. The lights are off and they must be looking for a fuse box or something because in flashlights, they're keeping me awake. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. Like if Forrest Gump could put two and two together yes. and be yes. like, something's not right. Something's here. not right. Something's not right. Yes. Yeah. And this is what really excites me. So the guy, we see his face, the only person whose face we see in this minute. His name's Frank Wills. He's a security guard. He's the security guard. Wait, there's only one in the whole building? No, he's the security oh, guard. Oh, the real guy. The guy. Oh, wow. Who called in Watergate. That's him. So that, that at least makes me feel a little bit better because when I was watching this again, I thought, what happened to him? Yes. Because was he not topped off? Like, surely Nixon would have been like, get no, rid of him. No. I mean, but... The sad thing is he hasn't had, like, he never had a great career. He, he had a lot of trouble getting work after this moment for the rest of his life. He had songs dedicated to him, an album dedicated to him by famous, like, musicians. Ne- never anything. And that's the sort of, you know, I want to believe IMDb research that I'm giving you guys in this podcast. But when I was looking at it, I'm like, I could not believe that is the guy. Wow. If you talk about... This is made in, you know, 1975 is probably when it was the majority of this movie is shot. It's 1971 too that all of the unfolding events that happened in all the president's men um, uh, and and then the final days, etc. I just am flabbergasted that that's the guy. That's pretty cool. That is great. That's I wonder who put who put that idea forward, like who approached him? I and mean, did he agreed to it. Ha- absolutely. It's the it's exactly that weird line that I didn't want to spoil right at the beginning where you talked about the first time you saw this at university in a filmmaking class, it was about blurring the lines between reality and fiction. And I think some of the most interesting case studies of things are when you watch people who've been in the real situations that then get drawn into the fictionalized versions of those things. I think some famous ones that are really resonant for me are um, a more really popular one. Um, United 93, so Paul Greengrass's 9-11 movie where um, the plane eventually, uh, you know, it's it's hijacked, it's about to go into fly into something and then the passengers 
sort of unite to take down the terrorists, but also takes down the plane. All of the people who are in the air traffic control tower that that, that are that are communicating with this plane are the real people. No, oh, I could not go back there. How could you go back? I, Isn't that impossible to the even trauma? The trauma of that. But you're going in there to dramatize it, to narrativize it for people to understand. Incredible pressure. I can't imagine what that would be like for them. So for a director, that's a lot to handle as well. Like people, you don't know how they're going to respond in that moment. You you don't. You just, especially with post-traumatic stress disorder, you don't know how anyone's going to react. No. It's it's pretty risky move. Yeah. Extremely risky and weird move. There's another really famous one, and I've mentioned it a few times if people are listening to me on podcasts. There's a film by an Iranian filmmaker called uh, Abbas Kiristami. It's called Close Up. And there was a famous story where um, a guy who was on the street one day, actually was on a bus, overheard a couple of ladies talking about their favorite filmmaker, a guy by the name I think is Muhammad Mark Malba. He hears them talking about his favorite filmmaker and he decides in that moment to pretend to be him. Oh. So he pretends to be him. He goes off, he meets them, he starts talking about wanting to make a film with them and it really goes nowhere other than he says that he wants to make a film with them and then it, he gets caught basically and he gets arrested. That's the story. The film close-up, Abbas Kiarostami gets the guy, gets the family, and makes a narrative version of that with all of them playing themselves. What is that? I, it, it, is that a documentary? Is that, oh. is that a narrative film? What is it? And I've always thought that All the President's Men blurs the line between primary and secondary sources because... If you, the more you research, you'll find out, and we'll talk about it on the show a lot, of Robert Redford, like, grooming these guys, knowing that they're producing this manuscript uh, that collates their entire investigation into a story. Um, you know, he's talking to Woodward and Bernstein while it's happening. He's pre-producing everything pre the publication of the book. The book's a bestseller. He already owns all of the rights. He's bringing a film crew together to make this happen so that it's prescient and timely. You've got literally the best people in the world on this film. Alan J. Pakula, there's really no one better at the time. Gordon Willis, cinematographer, no one better. Bill Goldman, he wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, won an Academy Award. Like, But then to have Frank Wills, <laughs> the security guard, it's it, like it's not, that's where you start to go, oh, my God, there are just these little touches that they're shooting at the Watergate building. He's there in that spot having to relive this moment that ultimately is going to change his life forever. It's I think there's going to be more and more of it, to be honest. Yeah. I think because it, I understand how easy it is to be um, overwhelmed and and then become completely switched off by daily news. It yeah. is a lot. It, you know, there's, <laughs> it's intense. In, like, a, in a previous episode, J.R. Hennessy used the phrase, everything happens a lot. Yep. <laughs> it does. It does. Um you know, especially when I was working at SBS, you see some god awful shit like yeah. come in over the wires. Like mm. there's some awful stuff, and so you really have to, um, you have as a journalist, you have to have a switch off point at a certain point. But your nature is to constantly want to know more and to constantly dig and all that sort of stuff. So it it can be quite exhausting. So as an audience, you almost like I'm always reminding my teams of 
don't forget the audience, like to remember where they are and what their lives and what their sort of daily habits are about because I truly believe our our sort of um, navel-gazing, journalists' navel-gazing will be the death of us. Like (laughs) this idea that everyone cares about just us and it's like we just have to remember it's a lot. Everyone has a lot going on in their days and the news cycle is a lot. So um, I, I... completely understand why people are going more towards those dramatic reality sort of blends where it's kind of like it's a nice neat story of princess margaret's life (laughs) that i became completely obsessed with thanks to the crown um yeah it's kind of like i can i think there's going to be more and more of that because it becomes digestible right yeah so like in this moment you wonder 1976 everyone in america knows this story inside and out it has dominated everything in their lives for years and then it has like a year or two breath where people are kind of get a break from it and then it's back so the book's there this movie's there it's not only been in their daily paper on like literally littering the front pages um and i say that with in in the kindest possible way like it's stamped on the front page every single day it is the story that defines this age and you understand that people are like what more could i possibly need to know Mm. This is why I think this one, it like you're saying, it denies us that um, ending of Nixon, you know, quitting, they know the quitting on camera. You know the ending. Exactly. You go into It's like Titanic. You go into this <laughs> nine hours going down. The ship is sinking. Spoilers. You know Spoilers. what's happening. <laughs> you know what's happening. So I think this is kind of the suspense in this is how did they get there? How did they uncover that? Yeah. Um, because these people... You know, I, I said at the beginning of the show, they're not very bright guys, but these people were, they had a system and they'd been getting away with a lot, with a lot that was requiring a lot of people to be complicit in it. And as they circled, it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting the way that they do it. And, and I think we're going to, as the show progresses, we're going to continue to dive further and further and further and farther into it. So you talked a little bit about Spotlight before journalism movies. Is this now outmoded for journalism? I think they're all valid. They're all certainly definitely worth going back and watching, especially at the moment for the president's men is. Is a, the text. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to see. I think it would have been quite shocking at the time of what people could get away with. But now we look at Trump and just think he lies on camera and people still lap it up. And that for me is what I find endlessly f- like fascinating like I'm I would love someone to do like a full psych analysis on what gets people to believe news that they clearly know is fake that's what I I can't can I just say you're the first person that's used the f and n oh on, really on this the I, fake news I just I thought it would take longer it's more the um like what, what example with Trump is Julian Assange mm-hmm. where there was Vision of him saying, I love Julian Assange, love WikiLeaks, like in front of a rally. Like he's there on camera, not doctored. All the TV stations around the world have covered it. And then Julian Assange gets taken out of the embassy and and put in custody. And he's like, oh, I don't know Julian Assange. I don't know who he is. And it's like, what? Like they show the two clips and it's just people still believe, like his devout followers will believe anything and that. Psychology is what I find fascinating. Do you think they believe him? I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. 
I mean, that's I, what and, I don't and, and get. I, and I think I ask you almost rhetorically because people who are dopey, like everyone's got an uncle, okay? <laughs> everyone has an uncle that's kind of like Trump. Like everyone has one who is just holier than thou, talks a whole heap of shit. Yeah, I've got it. Even Library and secretary say Hunt was at a book. That's not good. The White House aide told me that Hunt was investigating Kennedy. No, like your blood relation with them. They don't Who listen to you. You want the name you mean? No, they don't no, listen to you. And they continue to spell I don't know titles. And about 5% of it is okay. Like some got some points. And then 95% of it, you're like, what is yeah, going on? Pass me another glass of wine, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Arnie, <laughs> <laughs> can you just get that red? <laughs> just need another bottle. <laughs> just crack that red. Bring it over here. We need it. Um, and so I genuinely think that What's not talked about enough is just the char- that, that people like charming and confident people and have them in their lives and that's relatable to have people who just talk that nonsense. And also that how people understand, how people are approached with a fact or something that they don't agree with is a very interesting thing in the, in the world of Trump. And it's extremely interesting in the world of Australian, um, Australian politics and Australian discussions of climate and things like that at the moment. It's like, there are some people who fundamentally have been told that, that certain things are facts and you just sort of a flabbergasted. I took an, I'm going to take us on a massive tangent. I took an Uber ride the other day. And I was in the car and I'm in Sydney in Australia and I've recently been traveling all the way up to basically the Queensland border, which is the east coast of Australia, all along the coast because I had a couple of friends, I had a friend's wedding and then a, a family friend's birthday and so we went on a family holiday. I've been driving past some of the worst fire fronts in the history of this country. We're now 5 million hectares and to get, put that into perspective for international listeners, the most recent 2018 Los Angeles fires, which is some of the worst fires that Los Angeles have ever experienced, was 1.8 million hectares in Australia, 5 million hectares hectares right now as of 4th of January. And half a billion animals. And half a billion animals dead. Right now, people, Chernobyl is trending on Twitter, not from the phenomenal television show. It's actually saying that we may be in sort of this like cataclysmic, you know, uh, impossible to recover from scenario where Australian wildlife is kind of wiped off the face of the earth and uh, we take like decades to recover from. Possible. I'm sitting in a car with an Uber driver who didn't get a great review. And... They're telling me like, oh, what about this Australian political party, the Greens? Aren't they, don't they have egg on their face? And, I, and we were talking about the conversation started with the smoke and the fires and it was getting worse and there was no end in sight and there was no rain. And he started talking about the Greens political party. And said, I bet I know. And you, you, you might know. I so bet let's, I know. Let's set what... the table. Let's set the table. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm trying to be nice. I have no idea what you're saying. Like I, I like, I feel like I'm speaking in a language. Sorry, can what do you mean? Well, the Greens they didn't let us do any backburning, and in what backburning means is, um, for conservation, firefighting, rural fire services in the in the country, and and it happens internationally. They tactically burn like containment lines, um, in in national forests to make sure that if they're in the case of a fire, there there are like these landing zones where you can you can you can um, uh, you can stop a, a fire front, and also they just burn a lot of the undergrowth and underbrush where you know a lot of the fuel for these fires sort of kick off. I said I don't understand what you mean. Oh, they've blocked everything in the government to stop backburning. And I said, look, I understand what you're saying, 
that there have been climate arguments and political tangling. If you, and I said, but if you think that an Australian state government listens to an out of power, like not not currently in power <laughs> government, uh, uh, political opponent to decide what infrastructure decisions it makes about backburning, you've got it fundamentally wrong. The rural fire services have been saying for months that they need to backburn and have been saying it's going to be the worst ever and they can't. And blaming the Greens while the sitting Liberal government has done and, nothing. And this, is a, this is a conspiracy that has gone on for years. Yes. And The Guardian did a really great piece yes. on where the hell did it come from? Yeah. Like, where did this... Talk back radio yes, in Australia. Angry white men <laughs> who like to yell into the microphone. It's just... I had one Uber driver. Why is it always Uber drivers? Because Uber drivers have taken over the taxi. But what we're saying is, and this is the same, to, to wrangle back the topic is, there are people who who are hearing something, who are convinced of the argument and, and, and whose time poor nature in 2020 um, are, are being disseminated this information in a 24-hour news cycle and it becomes like this pervasive thing. It like leaks in. It's like Chinese water torture. It's in your brain and you you forget the origin source of that. You're not just picking up the post every day. You're not picking up the Telegraph in Australia or you're picking up the Australian or whatever and you're just reading that and that's your primary news source and maybe like one key radio like ABC for our, for our um, uh, a national broadcast or something like that. Um, you're, you're listening to any number of things, any number of theories. You might be listening to weirdo podcasts. People aren't telling you what their sources are. No. And, it's been and very messy. It's mess. I think there's also – I think there's a nature for us to want to compartmentalise things as well. We mm. like things to be in boxes in a way. So, like, even just look at the film industry – Everything has to have a genre. Mm -hmm. Like it has to fit that neat genre. Same with music. And like the whole little nice thing was like, oh, but is it hip hop? Is it country? It's like, oh, mine, why can't it be both? <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I think now we're like, people want to believe these things maybe because it's like, I need it to be in a nice, neat box mm. and a package and tied up with a bow. And so I can understand it where it's like, it, it, there, things are not black and white. There are a million shades of grey mm. and unfortunately there are, you know, people are not perfect, situations are not perfect. There's going to be a spectrum. You've just got to let go and like, you know, read a variety of sources, listen to a variety of people. You know, I think it's also like not live in an echo chamber is one thing. Mm. Like Facebook is a killer for that. Like you – Delete it. Like, do you know what I mean? The <laughs> amount of people who are like, everyone thinks that. No, not everyone thinks the same thing, but you're listening to the same people over and over again. And please continue to subscribe to One Heat. <laughs> no, but I, I, agree, I agree with you. It's, it's a balance. You see it in television. You know, we like serialized narratives. We like, we like things to make sense. And, you know, even in the ongoing, like you look at the pervasive – pop culture, you know, thing of our time, uh, pop cultural text of our time are like superhero movies and how they must interconnect and how they must be yep. in a universe together and everything must, oh. it, it, you know, it's, it's all that sort of nonsense. Um, it's really interesting. And I don't think there are easy answers. And I think when people find people to blame, it's easier. I think and, that's the that that is a big point. The blaming people really want to. They want to see. They, they want a singular person. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting, and I think we're definitely going to dive into it as we move on, is 
The reason I love this text, both why I love the book and why I love this movie so much, is that for a lead, a leader may ask, a leader may be a bad leader, and they may be a corrupt leader, and they may do bad shit. But what I think this movie gets to the heart of is that there are many complicit people mm-hmm. that make those things happen. And what is the strangest thing in direct contrast in the world of Trump is Trump as this totemic thing who says all this nonsense and does all these facts and demands all these crazy things and right now has like issued a drone strike on a, on an Iranian a military lead, which is kind of having World War Three start trending on Twitter. In the Mueller findings and in Fear, Bob Woodward's book, what happened was you had this sort of mad king and a whole bunch of lunatics, and then you had this, what is, I would say, largely comforting infrastructure of public servants around them that just flat out ignored orders. Mm. <laughs> like, if these people were like the people that maybe work for Nixon, <laughs> then Trump would have done all these things that'd be illegal and he'd already be impeached. He'd be there actually probably imprisoned. Net. Yeah, there is a safety net of people that we've seen operate in the Mueller findings and we've seen in those things. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll do my best as we're going along this show to make sure I do, put plenty of links in our show notes descriptions on your i on your i uh, app, uh, digital apps or Android, so you can click links to things. But I think that's what's really fascinating is that there is – I think one of the things that I love about this is starting on the edges and seeing who's culpable for causing these things to happen or enacting orders that they know to be illegal um, and, and then taking it all the way to the top. Because in a corporate environment and in politics at the moment and things like that, what happens is the leader is simply targeted even ScoMo, Scott Morrison, our Australian Prime Minister, yes, he's absolutely inept. Yes, we can we can unequivocally say that. Yes, but there is a culture of ineptitude and complicity with greed that is happening through that entire political system. And in corporate environments and in Australian corporate environments, you see like CEOs of major financial institutions get the sack because something's wrong. They're not pressing any of the buttons. No, you've got, and then you've got the. There's a there's a culture of things that are happening around them and relationships, and that is the thing that I think, for me, I think I want to dive into and continue to dive into with this movie is that they find a lot of people who are complicit of illegal behaviour and activities and things that are completely amoral, and a whole bunch of people who speak out to the amorality and 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 become sources in this investigation and in this ongoing investigation. Um, I think that goes back to the old, um, you know, evil happens when good people do nothing. Yes, it's it's that sort. I can all I can also imagine that there would have been a lot of fear if mm. you worked for Nixon and you worked in that circle. I can oh imagine the fear of just. Oh, they didn't mind killing people back then. Nah, nah and they still don't. Just, well, <laughs> it's harder. I remember, like so many holidays I've gone to, like Russia and Chile and whatnot, and they show you like when there's been like horrid leaders. And they're always like, oh, that person disappeared? That's the most terrifying <laughs> word in the English language to me, disappeared. Like, what do you mean disappeared? No one just disappeared. Where'd they go? What happened? Why do you just casually write it off as, oh, the disappeared? No. Like, just scares the because shit out of me. Because bodies decompose. <laughs> like- when you add disappear and decompose together, they're two things that, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's kind of like I just imagine the the fear of why what would have led those people to make those decisions. Um, and probably in hindsight, they probably wouldn't have done it, I would imagine. Mm. A large chunk of them wouldn't have done it. Um, but now it's kind of, like you said, it's reversed. These people are, the people around Trump are trying to do the right thing. Um, or they're quitting. They're just like, <laughs> bye, I'm done. I can't put up with old mate anymore. Um, yeah, it's a completely... It's a, it's, it's a shift. It's yeah. a shift. And whether it's the, the thought of what the office of president is. So when they see something illegal, it's like, oh, illegal activities may be happening. Where did it stop? Where did it originate? And we're going to keep digging and follow the money. And I think still following the money is very good. Do you know what's funny? I Every time I see Deep Throat now, so when I was at the Telegraph, um, we got TV training and they showed us like um, they brought in a stylist to just show you what to wear, what was appropriate for your for your, um, your shape. And all that. Anyway, there was a makeup what artist. What was appropriate for your well, shape? Well, 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 like, you know, if you've yes. got broad shoulders, what colours worked best for you on camera, all that sort of stuff. It was very, it very felt very ni- Edith Head 19, you know. Like, <laughs> anyway. Um, That's why I laughed because I imagined it like a finishing school. All right, now you're... Walking around with books on my head. Bit of June Daly Watkins. (laughs) Love her. She's great. Um, The makeup artist was um, a gentleman who was um, quite colourful. And anyway, he was putting it, doing my face and he put um, some blush on me and it was a matte one so that didn't shine on camera. I was like, oh, that's really nice. What's the name of it? And the the name of the colour <laughs> was Deep Throat. Wow. And I said, oh, how appropriate for a journalist. And he, <laughs> he clearly knew nothing about all the present men. And he went, oh, honey, if only. And I was like, no, no, not a sex joke. No, I mean like the the, the Nixon Watergate. No, it went right over his head. He oh. was just like. Anyways, every time I look at blush, I think of deep throat. Oh, so well. <laughs> well. I don't know where <laughs> to go with that. Uh, that was a good, th- that's one of the better tangents. <laughs> one of the better tangents that we've found. Um, there are so – I just want to get really nerdy for a second. I love the font in this movie. It's so stupid to say. But, like, you as a digital person now who – like, fonts matter. Yes. And like readability, and I just there's something quintessential about the all the president's font. It's not quite the courier newspapery thing that you would expect it. It's this beautiful, delicate, very purposeful. It's very stylized. Very stylized font. Um, I remember sitting again at the Telegraph, sitting through a whole seminar of how they were changing the font of the masthead. Oh, that would have been big. Yeah, it it's was, icon- it was, it was iconic. It's huge when they do that. It's, yes, um, because it freaks people out. Yeah. You notice the difference between the Sunday and the Daily now? Yeah. The Sunday's has like um it's more curled on the edges of the P's and the G's. Yeah. Whereas the Daily is flat. It's a hard. Yes. Stuff like that. I'm fucking nerd out stock. <laughs> like stock. Like I'll pick up a magazine or I'll pick up a, I was like, Oh, this is good stock. And I'll, like young people are like, What are you talking about? Or I get a business card and I was like, Oh, this ooh, is good stock. Ooh, and good only stock. like the old look people. at that. Look at that raised. <laughs> 
Look at that raised <laughs> print. That's good. I just nerd out on like paper goods. <laughs> very like good, that. very good font. I love it. And I'm like, God, I've always thought, God, I wish I could find what that font is and just make every website that I run have that font. I love it. Imagine if they'd done it in Comic Sans. That, oh, it just doesn't have the same punch. Doesn't have the same punch. We need it in Courier or this beautiful, delicate font or nothing. And the list of people that we get to see in this minute. So we've got a very in the previous minute is sort of the the heavy acting hitters, I suppose, and then the actual name of the film. But we've got Jack Warden, who isn't, you know, films like 12 Angry Men and Shampoo, Hal Holbrook, who plays Deep Throat, <laughs> I, I only, Honey, You Wish, We Only Wish, um, Martin Balsam, Jason Robards, who won an Oscar back-to-back, back-to-back years. He won an Oscar for Ben Bradley, Best Supporting Actor, anyone, Best Supporting Actor for Julia, He's in Magnolia, he plays Tom Cruise's dad in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. He's in Parenthood, which uh, is a, another way that you can fall in love with uh, him. David Shire does the music for this movie. He did Zodiac, Saturday Night Live, and then Gordon Willis. Obviously, um, movie nerds know the name. His nickname is the Prince of Darkness. He's the cinematographer who did Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, um, and pretty much everything that uh, Pakula did. Um, Washington Buildings have this thing and we were talking about it completely before recording about soundproofing. Yes. Washington buildings look like they're kind of concrete soundproof look like everything looks like a soundproof studio in some way. If you've seen the recent, the report with Adam driver, it's out on Amazon prime. If you haven't Mel, you've got to see it. It's on my list. And anyone who hasn't seen it, Terrific I'm currently film. working my way through Mrs. Maisel. Uh, well, there yeah. you go. You're going to sidestep out of Maisel <laughs> into there. But whenever I see a Washington building in this movie, I'm like, it just rings of, I don't know what it is. It's like soundproof, industrial. It looks chunky. Hard and cold. Hard, cold. And it's so, not an inviting environment. No. And in the middle of a city that has all these like, you know, um, infamous monuments and huge things, the, the actual corporate structures, residential structures are all just so boxy and ugly. They're, I can't remember what the style is called, that cement sort of. The <laughs> the University of Technology Sydney, the original yes. building, yeah. is the same sort of style. Yes. Oh, one of the ugliest buildings It's one of the ugliest buildings in Sydney. It's hideous. I can't remember if my mum or my dad <laughs> called it the Jenga building. It is Jenga. It looks like Jenga. It does look like it's Jenga. Ugly. And But like Jenga at a pub. Like one that's been used yeah, a lot. beaten around. Beaten around. Had a couple of beers, <laughs> dropped on it. <laughs> Exorbed beer and many other things. But, yeah, it's an, it's an ugly style. And whenever I see this hard, cold, clinical, boxy, concrete, industrial, it just kind of – it feels almost incongruous. Maybe it's maybe it makes complete sense for, like, function, but it feels incongruous to, like, these big opulent buildings that are on they're in the, around the rest of the city. Not conducive to creativity either. No. Doesn't, it doesn't leap creativity. doesn't leap like we've paid um, some famous architect to help design how this is going to look. It's just like, nope, this is this very... Function. Yeah. Everything is about function. Just do function. your job. Get in, get out. <laughs> go just, home. Just do your job. Yeah, pretty much. It's not like, like Google Frank- with the beanbags <laughs> and the bloody ping pong tables and all that sort of stuff, is it? Can you imagine Nixon bringing in some beanbags and a ping pong table? <laughs> Nixon, Nixon and just all those record. I imagine I, just for a second I had a flash of like Nixon smoking a joint on a beanbag, like <laughs> t- talking about who he's going to spy on next. Just uh, having a round table or a walking meeting. Walking- like where you just, you know, get well, some the, steps up. Listen. 
we know that according to Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, <laughs> that there are many a walking meeting. Many a walking meeting. That I think because people are just in a hurry. You've yeah. just got to get shit done. Get it done. It's. But I think in, in this movie, the that boxy structure and the concrete feel it really plays into the storyline. Yes. Like it's this whole sort of like, especially with the garages, sorry, the what we would call car parks, but Americans call, call garages. garages. Um, like with all the deep throat scenes and you just like, you never know what's around the corner. This whole sort of, you don't know what's lurking and, um, you know, you're in the dark and trying to make your way through this maze. And every one of us has lost a car in a car park at some point. Yeah, Seinfeld did a whole episode. Seinfeld. On it. What the hell is this car, Kramer? We need a system. Well, it's got to be here. Why are they using so many colors? The numbers go up to 40. Maybe it's not on this level. <laughs> There's four different levels. Maybe we're on the wrong level. You could lose cars all the time. And now they do lots of things. They like color code yep. shit. They, you know, um, don't forget your car. You're on this level and blah, blah, blah. They give you all these little levels and stuff. But it's so cold. It's It all looks the same. So you can easily lose yourself. Yeah. And, and also there are just so many, like a, a car garage or a car park and, and even this Watergate building, it's like, the car parks feel like bowels that you can get lost in, but here in the function, there's also, it's this weird thing where it's like, there's no hiding. Yeah. Out here in the functional, there's no secret spots. Everything has to kind of be underground. We have no to go, pot plants you can hide behind. No pot plants. There's just, it's just cold concrete. And imagine huge echo chambers in Washington. Oh, yeah. Have you ever worked in a in an, a space where it's like polished concrete floor mm-hmm, and they're like, this mm-hmm. is great. It echoes like shit. Yeah, like, it's bad. It's awful. Not and especially, especially in a newsroom where people are talking all the time and things like that. Yes, it's, it's not good. It's loud and you drop anything and it smacks you. <laughs> if you've got one of those glass key cups, it's done. You are. It's done for if you drop it. It's done. It's kind of, yeah, I just think now we're sort of like, I've worked in so many different newsrooms and – Yes, they do have to be quite functional, but they also have to be quite, you have to think about sound. You also have to think about comfort. Like people come in there and it is, you know, an intense space. And so you have little breakout rooms now where there might be a lounge area where you can just go and talk to someone not at a desk or not in a boardroom or something like that. So it's sort of um, like at Nova's um, offices, we've just gone up a level and we got told it was award-winning light. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, previous tenants had installed a wooding light. It replicates Look. actual outdoor proper light. And you, oh, we walked in, we're like, oh, that's nice. And you don't realize until you go down to another level, and you're like, holy shit, it is great light. <laughs> like those little things that people put so much effort into. Now you watch this Now, movie Gordon and you're Willis, like, the Prince of Darkness, would not want to shoot on that level. No. No. He wants, he wants all a, those seedy corners. He wants a seedy corner. He wants hard. Uh, fluorescent lights, which are currently like sitting in my office right now, like a hard fluorescent light of a new of an old school Washington Post newsroom. Like that's the kind of light that you want to function with. Look, I mean, they even ma- managed to make the handsome Robert Redford look a bit tired and weathered, didn't they? Like, I mean, he's still so he's so handsome, so ridiculously handsome. Just yeah, it's unbelievable. If you see the real Woodward, you've got to be stoked. Like amongst your mates, <laughs> amongst your mates, you're always like, who would you who would you like to play you? And you try not to be the guy who's like, I'm going to pick the most handsome person possible to play me. You're like, oh yeah, John Bernthal or Oscar Isaac or something like that. No, you can't pick that. But he got it. He got it. He 
and Hoffman does have the hair of Bernstein at least. They're both much more idealized versions. Well, I don't think we've got it. I don't think we've, I don't think we've answered some of the big questions that are going to be answered in this show yet. But I think we had to ask some of these questions because I think that's going to be an itch that we're going to have to scratch. And some of the guests on the show, absolutely going to be looking into, um, uh, and, and without spoiling too much, absolutely want to dig into the psychology of people receiving things. And in this modern world where we're assaulted with laptops and phones and TVs and goddamn it, Amazon products in your house that can read you the news in the morning mm-hmm. if you program them to and, and Google turn Homes, your turn your lights on. The comfort of a paper and the comfort of, and as we'll dive through the different elements of the movie, of knowing that a story is not ready to go to print and then giving it another day and having the layers of fact checkers and editorial guidance that goes into things and then pressure testing your publishing license rather than sort of the democratized nature of blogs. I think there's so much that even in just the fleeting moments of this, it's, it's starting to trigger those conversations. You have to be really careful. Like one of our, one of the mottos with my team is don't get a suit. Yes. Like constantly like, <laughs> yes. oh, don't, you know, make, we are aware who's, who's got ads with the company. We have to be on the ball. You're like, you can't accuse people of things. You have to, it's in Australia. It, actually, before we close, <laughs> contextualize for people listening, the difference say in America. Mm-hmm. Where we've got, in particular in this story, you've got sources who are coming out. They're talking about, you know, you're getting sometimes three and four sources of people's culpability in things, and then obviously it leaks in the paper, and then the police investigate, etc. Talk about how that's drastically different in Australia with our libel laws and and the way that things work in Australia. It's uh, you, you basically you have to have people on the record. Um, it's, it's incredibly, the, the defamation, the Jeffrey Rush case, for example, there's a lot, especially actors, famous people will take you to court. Um, and you have the option of, um, truth defense, but it can be hard to prove. Um, I think it's just very, um, it's quite hard. I mean, you get, end up getting into like the Tracy Spicer example as yes, well. Yes. Um, it just becomes quite What's messy. the Tracy Spicer example so, for people listening? Tracy Spicer is a, in Australia, is a um, journalist um, and um, active feminist who um, sort of, um, long story short, com- created this group to um, push the Me Too movement in Australia. It didn't – it got some criticism about its achievements and things like that. Um, and then Tracy recently did a documentary um, that aired on the ABC about um, some people and their cases who would come to her. And some of them had been – their emails had been shown on screen without their knowledge. And those women then spoke out to other media and said, I didn't give my permission. Now, Tracy had always been quite um, – uh, outspoken about the defamation laws and how how because they're so tight in Australia <laughs> that impacted on women coming out and saying this person did this to me, and then these women who had their details had been aired in her documentary, then spoke out. She returned fire by sending them legal letters saying I'm going to sue you for defamation. 
and it's like this whole mess of what has happened here. Like I think there, there's it is definitely time for a genuine conversation about defamation laws in Australia, not to mention freedom of information requests. It is really hard to get information like you'll see the abc do reports on what seems like such a mundane thing but there's clearly more to the story and they're like <laughs> do you know what i mean they're digging yeah. they're like, oh we got this information through foi and you're like there's something else you're digging at yeah the general public doesn't know that and so i think we have to we're lucky in australia in that we have a fairly healthy democracy where you can call the prime minister a dickhead you can <laughs> question things freely. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. There are a lot of countries where you can't do that. We just saw only like a couple of days ago, the prime minister going to um, bushfire victims and they were like, I'm not shaking your hand. Get out of here. You're a dickhead, mate. Go away. And it's like, I just, I, I actually, whether or not you, it doesn't matter what party you're in, there's something reassuring in knowing we have the freedom to say you got the voice to say get out of here yeah something's not right here yes we need to look into it and i think having that 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 healthy curiosity and that nature we should encourage that in people yes um but i think it's that weird dichotomy in oz and the reason i wanted mel to explain it is there's a weird dichotomy in infrastructures that have been built here from relationships from a long time with media personalities and tycoons. The old guard. <laughs> the old guard. Um, and defamation laws and things that were structured in such a way that when it butts up against what our natural inclinations for what we determine to be sort of our natural democratic sort of base state is, that it sort of clashes with these two divergent activities. So when you look at something like all the presidents in Australia, that almost would be impossible to make those public accusations with sources on the record unless or with with anonymous sources um to to say this even if you had valid data and you had that like the abc which is our national broadcaster was raided by the australian federal police to uncover sources and so i think definitely that's something that's going to come up on the show i think it's something that's really interesting to talk about and i think it's also while it's absolutely apt and perfect and goddamn poetic that the prime minister goes in there for a marketing exercise to Cabago, a town that was absolutely ravaged by bushfires where people, two people are, died, where two people died, where people have lost their homes, where people are hungry, where they don't have access to food or all the, and clean water and more houses are being lost and there's more risk and someone can call him a dickhead. But at the same time, there seems to be this underhanded infrastructure of it's really hard to get information. It, it is it, really hard. There's it's, no, there's. I mean, take example, um, Scott Morrison's holiday, the Prime Minister's holiday before Christmas to Hawaii. Why the country? While the country was already on fire, <laughs> um, and his people denied he was in Hawaii. They were like, "Oh, he's on a family trip, not in Hawaii." And then, like a day later, oh yeah, he is in Hawaii. Uh, so, a, a day later, he is in Hawaii, but also he's not in Hawaii. Why is this person posting yeah. on social media a photo with the Prime Minister? overseas I think in this world my favorite thing is when any sort of um political minder says that's not a story you bet your ass <laughs> it's a story like and if you tell a report oh there's nothing there they are gonna dig they're yeah. just gonna keep digging like I just think this idea that um you can just blatantly not lie and you're not gonna get caught out I'm hoping they'll like maybe I'm an eternal optimist where I'm just like these people will be found out. Um, well, that is on all the president's minutes one of the key topics of this show that you're gonna 
we're going to eat at the edges and we're going to try and unpack what that inclination is for us to find out what the truth is and the actual truth and and why people are still curious and why journalists still exist. But then it's also what is paired with that that's making people apathetic in a modern context and what may be why this film continues to scratch everything that's going on in our brains is because there is some inclination there that despite being divided, people want to know the truth, people want to feel like they're free. Mel Matheson, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Thanks for coming along to play. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And we might catch you again along the run. Hopefully. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it again. Like the Washington Post coverage of Watergate, this podcast is a result of a collaborative effort. I want to say a huge thank you to our narrator once again, Miss Holly McBride. I want to thank amazing, amazing guest, Melissa Matheson, Mel Matheson at Mel underscore Matheson. You can find her as the managing editor of goat.com.au, which is at G-O-A-T underscore Oz. You can check out all the great stuff there. There's a stack of podcasts associated with their site. So I would just um, start going there and researching it. It is exclusively um, online via your phone. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's listening. I want to thank everyone who's supporting uh, our Patreon. And if you do have a chance, go to oneheatminute.com and jump onto our Patreon link. And for just a couple of bucks a month, you can keep all of our amazing podcasts, including Increment Vice and all the President's Minutes, ticking over and coming to you for free. We appreciate your support and we appreciate your help. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes very soon. And if you want to get in touch with us, make sure it's at one Blake Minute. It's also mail at oneheatminute.com or at ATPM pod on Twitter. Remember, grab a flag, put it in your pocket.